Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil, second year PhD student in history at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. On the podcast today, we have the pleasure of listening to Dr. Erica D. Edwards, Associate Professor of Colonial Latin American History, Latin American Studies, and Africana Studies at UNC Charlotte. Shout out to my friend, Brandy Waters, for putting me on to awesome Latin American history scholarship, like the work of Dr. Edwards. Dr. Edwards is on New Books in African American Studies to discuss her brand new book, published in 2020 by her friends at the University of Alabama Press, entitled Hiding in Plain Sight, Black Women, the Law, and the Making of a White Argentine Republic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Edwards. Thank you so much, Adam, um, for this opportunity. I'm really excited about this, uh, this, again, this opportunity to talk about my book and just know that um, New Books is, is doing this. This is amazing what you're doing for, for us as scholars to be able to get our work out. So thank you. You're very welcome, Professor. And so before we really get into the book, you know, some of our listeners may be wondering, right, th- listening to the title, right, this is about Black women, the law, and you know, Afro-Argentine, you know, women. So can you connect us to how your story can be connected to African-American history and and African-American studies at large? Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that you actually, you know, are leading with this question because I can imagine some people saying, okay, but what's that got to do with with Blacks in the United States, you know, historically and or the present? Um, So a couple of things. First and foremost is, uh, this notion of um, this African-American, right? Um, one of the things I want us to think about, even though we, we technically still use it to describe those that are in the United States, um, American in general being a, can be applied to, and is still applied, at least within Latin America, to all of the Americas. So I just want us to, first of all, think of expanding that notion when we talk about African-American, especially historically within the Americas. So um, technically, I would just say maybe that this is more of a Southern, um, Southern, Southern notion of the African-American experience, i.e. being in the Southern Hemisphere. But on a more serious note, or one that I really, the takeaway, it's really is recognizing this larger project and this larger notion of the diaspora, right? The African diaspora and recognizing that her story in Argentina is very much related to a lot of the stories and experiences that Black women had, excuse me, in the United States, specifically during the 18th and 19th century. Questions in terms of intimacy, in terms of domestic work, in terms of enslavement, being a mother. Um, These are all very similar uh, experiences. And so talking about Afro-Argentine women 
at least for me, really much is to understand and share another experience that Black women have had and continue to have in the diaspora. And actually, it speaks to really kind of when I went there, that was when it really, it really hit home how much I am connected to Black women, regardless of what country they're from. So I just really want and hope that as we continue to talk about the book and my experiences there, that we'll see that there's a lot more in common um, than there is then there are differences and that this is really how we achieve and continue to grow upon this notion of, of having a, a black consciousness. Exceptional, exceptional. And so uh, you, you broached this a little bit before, uh, but tell us, tell the audience about your path to writing, hiding in plain sight. Definitely. So this started um, when I was a junior in um, college and I had the opportunity to study abroad and I ended up in Argentina. Um, and while there, I really, and this is one of the rare situations, I guess, where um, you can really see how your life literally, uh, my life experiences made me really think about what this meant for somebody living there, you know, a few hundred years ago. But essentially what happens is, or happened is, I go there and I had learned, you know, that slavery had existed in all the countries throughout the Americas. And so I was expecting to see that there would be some level of an African influence also in Argentina, because essentially I knew nothing about Argentina when I went there. And so I was shocked to find out that there was essentially nothing. And, you know, for the first, what, month and a half, maybe, yeah, about four to six weeks, I did not see another black person at all. And so I was like, what, wait a second, what's going on? Something, <laughs> either the history books are wrong or I am, you know, something's wrong here. What was, there's a disconnect. And so that's what really started my question of, well, what, what, what happened then? Because I, I, I believe the history books and I'm not seeing anybody here. And, and so that's what was the kernel, I guess, the, the, the beginning of the journey. And when I went back, to, when I returned back to my school, uh, Grand Valley State University, I, I just wanted to con I continue to pursue that. And I found that not a lot had been even written about it, um, which was shocking to me. So it just became more of like a mystery. And from there, it carried me to graduate school. And I continued with that, that um, subject matter at FIU. And then over time, um, I, I found by about 2007, 2008, when I went back there, um, that it was starting to become in fashion slowly, right? This black history, but it always ended up being, oh, I shouldn't say always, but majority of it was about Buenos Aires. And I was like, man, come on, like, VA is just one city. It's an amazing city. But there's a whole country out there. What happened to, or what's going on with the Black experiences in other parts of the country? So that shifted me to go to Cordoba, and that's the the area that I focus on in the book. And then, as I continued to do my work, um, one of the things that I finally hit me one day is I'm not. I have a lot of this information, but I'm not seeing her the way I want to see her um, discussed. 
And so I took what I had and I essentially, uh, the bulk of my dissertation and said, you know what, this is a good starter, but I'm going to essentially rebuild this from the ground up. And so I went back to my original sources and I did two more trips back down to be, uh, excuse me, to Cal- to Cordoba. And um, I decided that she was going to be the focus, i.e. black women. And that's really where it took off. And I realized that this is the story that needed to be told. So um, long story short, it's, it's one of those things that I constantly tell my students. And I hope everyone, if, if you get a chance to go abroad, because you never know how it may change your life. In my case, that one little question has led me to this book, right? And a career. So, um, but that's, that's essentially what happened um, over the last 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, graduate students and, and those uh, coming up through the pipeline, I hope you're listening really, really like well right now because Dr. Edwards, she just let y'all know, hey, sometimes it just happens on a whim. And then your whole life yeah. has changed and you find home in yeah. another country. Um, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And so uh, speaking of home, you know, there was uh, uh, there was a piece that you just got published in the home of right black women's history. Right. And that would be the Association of Black Women's Historians uh, uh, blog. And so, you know, your your recent post was entitled when the archive imitates life research in Argentina. So you just broached it a bit with you talking about your experiences uh, going uh, and, and producing your dissertation, but can you dive a little deeper and speak about the blog post and, and, you know, it, it's importance and, and, and what did you write in that? What, what did you say, right? For those who haven't read it yet, but will after this interview. Well, I mean, it was a call that they had, so just to give some background information that the Association of Black Women Historians wanted was just to, to understand, um, you know, what what's it like for Black women to be in the archives? So, you know, this is one of many posts or blogs that they will be uh, promoting, um, and I was honored that they decided to start with mine. Um, and essentially, and, and, and when that call came out, I was like, you know, definitely, I have to talk about this because I think it is such a a unique situation where here I am in a country that you know prides itself on being very European. Uh, if you were the, the most recent census, for example, the two thousand well, they'll be having one this year, but the two twenty ten census, right, had estimated less than a percent of the population being of Afro descent, right. So um, here I am walking around this country as a black a woman and where, you know, there are no black people. And yet at the same time, I'm in the archives trying to rediscover well, what, well, what happened to them when there was a visible uh, population, right? So essentially, let's, numbers wise, we're looking at a population that overall um, of African descent, specifically the slave enslaved population in Argentina, was roughly about thirty percent um, at the end of the eighteenth century, and then today is less than one percent. Right, so that alone is, is is, and here I am walking around very visibly a black woman. You know, I cannot pass, um, and so having to feel kind of also that sense of invisibility as well. Um, 
one of the things I opened up the blog with is, you know, this, this, this Portuguese, the Portuguese that I constantly would hear, which was, bom dia, como vai você, you know, good morning, how are you? Every, well, I should say, most people, if they would approach me that way, it's because they assumed automatically I was Brazilian. Okay, so that after over a while really hit home that you have to be a foreigner, right? Because there are no blacks in Argentina. In other words, this notion of an Afro-Argentine um, just didn't exist. You know, you may, or let me rephrase this. You may be Afro-Argentine, but it's because you're a first or a second, maybe a third generation immigrant, right? Or were uh, your parents or your grandparents were immigrants. That's the only way, not the idea that you, you know, actually come from um, a slave, that you're a slave descendant, right? That you have, you know, centuries like here in the United States where we can say, sure, you know, we can probably trace our, our roots back seven, eight, nine, ten generations. Um, so that kind of like is the basis of it. And um, so. Again, over the 18 years, one of the things that I, I discovered is <laughs> I was very much um, seen as something different, something exotic, something out of the box. Because, again, there's no such thing as an Afro-Argentine. And I think that that's and that's part of what I was writing in the actual um, in the blog. Right. Having during these trips that I would go on. Um, the stairs, for example, of, ooh, what is that? You know, because in some cases, I know for some people, that's the first time they ever saw a black person. And that also was the case for some of the archivists, right? Because, I mean, here you have, um, I'm American, I'm black, I'm a woman. And in some of these cases, they had never experienced that. And, and one of the things I found quite amusing is, you know, especially for the provincial archives where there's very few foreign scholars, um, they remembered the first American to come, the, to go to Cordoba, the uh, provincial archives in 1980. You hear me? <laughs> and they asked me if they, if I knew him and I knew of his work, but no, I did not know him personally, but that was the last person that had come to look at race, specifically black people, uh, the black experience in Cordoba. And they are, that's how long it was, right? Or the most recent American to come there was like 2004 and I was there in 2006, 2007. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very much a very intimate space, right? Where you, where I had a chance to really get to know people. Um, on a personal level, I was there for about two and a half years. So, it, and every day practically. So it was, um, it was an experience. Or, for example, one of the things I remember is I was working and taking photos, and you know I saw this person pull out their 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 camera and just take a picture of me, and I'm like, what in the world? Why would you? What the heck? Like, it, I was so bothered by that because it just didn't. You know, this wasn't somebody who was working in the archive. And later on, I asked somebody and it was the Taurus. And I'm like, so I guess, you know, I'm on, you know, an item on display, I guess, a proof that there's a black person. And, you know, that kind of feeling, you know, the, 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 um, I just felt somewhat violated by that. Cause I was like, that was, uh, that was just, it just really bothered me. Unacceptable. That was, you know, something like, I'm not strange. I'm not, I'm not exotic. I'm just doing my work. And so 
And these things, you know, would constantly, you know, happen, especially at the initial phase of my work in each of these archives. There's so many amazing archives in Cordoba. Um, and I just said, geez, this is, this is almost as if like, you know, what, what black women have to experience on the outside of the archives, I'm experiencing on the inside as well. The cat calls, you know, the stairs, for example, like I stressed, it was, it could, it would get at times intense, especially at the beginning. Um, also one of the things, um, being there as the only, you know, black person, um, and many, for many days and days on end, you know, um, I remember specifically when President Obama was elected, I was actually on a Fulbright by then and in Argentina, and I just was devastated I could not be home to really feel that connection of being with other Black people and, you know, sitting in Argentina, just, you know, excited and happy and jumping up and down by myself. Um, and it's those moments where, again, it just this, this notion of kind of invisibility really hit home because I remember trying to explain that to somebody in Argentina and this excitement I had and their response was, well, I mean, nothing much is going to change for us. Foreign policy is going to stay the same. And I remember thinking, oh, calm down. <laughs> No, not that. Like, like they, you know, obviously for some of them, they didn't get it. And I was like, no, but you, do you understand he, what, what, what he broke? This, this, this glass ceiling that he broke for so many people. It was a think about the running joke. Yeah, one day, well, we all know we can't tell our kids that they can be anything because they can never be the president of the United States. Well, obviously that joke is no longer even funny, you know, because it can happen. And here, this person, I'll never forget this particular person. And I just, it was just so, so disheartening to hear that, like, well, you know, our foreign policy with the U.S. isn't going to change. They're going to keep doing this, doing that. It doesn't matter that he's black, white, yellow, brown, whatever. And I was like, ugh. So, um, and I just was, it was, it was one of those things, again, where, you know, I'd walk down the street and cat call in and then I'd hear you know whistles on the cat calls going in the archives and I hear sometimes whistles on the inside of the archive and you're just like give me a break you know and it just it really it was an experience that I think um I felt that was worth telling and excited to pass on this this information about it um so no that Oh no, no, it did for sure, and and I'm sure our listeners who who are listening in on the conversation are probably looking like, "Wow, it's like really, you know, uh, unfortunate." And it also goes to show that for for those who are going to these archives and 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 like yourself doing this important work, that you know, you do have things that happen to you, right? Um, and that, and I'm really, um, I'm really happy that you um, had the opportunity through uh, ABWH um, to to be able to tell that story, uh, so that you can then not only write it but also you know voice it to those who are listening here, um, and 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 also you know, and and it also helps us to better understand the nature of the book, right? Because th- there are some areas in, in your text that you can kind of see, um, especially early. Um, some of these particular stories and how they also inform your work. Um, yeah. And, and so um, a question I have for you, um, 
talking about meaning and, and importance. Um, what does it mean to have the first comprehensive study in English of the history of African descendants outside of Buenos Aires? I mean, it's an honor, really. I feel in many ways that this this was bestowed upon me um, to write this this book, this study, learn about these women. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing in many ways. Um, the last book, comprehensive book, historical book to really be have been written about um, blacks in Argentina. Uh, was in 1980 um, by George Reed Andrews. I believe it was his first monograph. And um, so, you know, for, here we have, what, 40 years later, the next book to come out to really, a good social history, I want to stress, of, of, of the Black experience. And um, so it's, it's long overdue. And I wanted to make sure I did not repeat what um, Dr. Andrews had done. Great, you know, comprehensive study I wanted something else and so it's it means a lot to be able to take this story to a larger audience and um, again and also highlight a lot of the good work that has already come out um, I definitely have to give credit to the Cordova historians I mean they've got some really good stuff and so to be able to engage with what they've done and then go beyond it as well in my study, I think is also important. So it's an honor to be able to um, bring this to an English speaking audience and, and show and highlight the amazing history of, of, of Afro-Argentines and specifically Afro-Argentine women, of course. Of course, of course. And so you, you're obviously not speaking uh, like your, your book's obviously not about uh, Buenos Aires. And so can you talk to us about the nature of slavery um, in Cordoba and in, in, in comparison to uh, Buenos Aires and also incorporating, you know, what that meant specifically for uh, the women in your study where you're talking about this concept of black invisibility. Right. I never heard about that before. So can you please tell us more about that? So, yeah, let me I'll break that down first and foremost. First, um, this notion first of black invisibility um, is really something that we as scholars have kind of coalesced behind to try and explain essentially what 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 happened right to the black population and what 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 it ultimately is trying to show is that they are still here right it's not as if this notion and what I mean by here is is the understanding of, of blackness and and specifically that the, especially historically that they were very prevalent, um, especially in the historical record. That, you know, so the visibility was there. So what had happened to make them invisible? That's the process that we now acknowledge, right? So they're there. They're you know, especially through the 18th through mid 19th century very visible, but then late 19th century onward, we start to really see a, a concerted effort from both the state as well as the individual to whiten the population. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean that they disappear, right? And poof, they're gone, but rather there is a shift in the dialogue to ultimately become more of a modern nation, a whitened nation, and in doing so, blackness 
is kind of left behind. So it's a black invisibility, but again, it doesn't, it, it's to suggest that um, we are, or this, to suggest that the, the history ultimately is still there. And so we have to see this process of whitening as essentially a way to blanket their existence. But in doing so, we're also then also uncovering it to show that they have always been there. Um, so I just want to make that very clear. So black invisibility is kind of the ignoring of them being present and uh, continuously in the country. They still are there. And, they, and, and a lot of Afro-Argentines still fight that notion. I mean, imagine your whole life having to tell someone I'm not Brazilian, right? I'm Argentine. Oh yeah, well your grandpa, da, da, da. no, I am Argentine, you know, just like you are. Um, so that's really what black invisibility is about. And it also is to move beyond um, this kind of notion that they disappeared. Nobody disappears, right? But rather you choose to ignore or see this person, right? Um, that's so that's kind of black invisibility uh in terms of um cordoba versus buenos aires what is happening is you have um and, and buenos aires again has been well documented uh in terms of the black experience it's a it's a metropolis it's the capital of the the colonial um, vice royalty so a very important area a port city um, so you're going to constantly have this infiltration of, of, of slaves. We are finding out through recent studies, even more so than, than what we thought before. Um, so kind of like a New York kind of thing, very, very robust and, and, and large population. Um, Cordoba, however, is very small, very intimate. Um, for the period of study that I have, uh, the the most the city has is twelve thousand people, in comparison to Buenos Aires, which geez, you know, reaches forty fifty thousand people. So, Cordoba is also a very much a colonial city, where you have generations upon generations of families that have you know can trace their roots back to the conquistadors. and are still having this prominence, you know, especially during my time of study. Um, and that is also true then for Afro descendants that would have then uh, some of them now being freed, but some of them also being slaves, but it was perpetual for generations. So you're looking at a city in which there isn't a lot of mobility versus Buenos Aires, which is constantly on the move. Another major change between Cordoba and Buenos Aires is um, religion. Cordoba, even to this day, has, you know, is known for being very Catholic and at times even more conservative than Buenos Aires. And so that really shifted the conversation in terms of how Blackness not only developed, but also how these Black women were able to escape their Blackness. It was not going to be a very radical shift or change that could possibly happen in Buenos Aires. In Cordoba, it's going to have to be something very um, personal, right, and intimate via various relationships that are formed. That is how these women are able to ultimately achieve whiteness and escape and or deny their blackness.
Um, so, and also because Cordoba is so small, it helped me to cross reference my sources. So I'd find her in the census and I'd find her in Ontario records, probate records, a number of cases that would happen. And that helped to create, recreate this black world as in terms of how she negotiated her blackness when and if she denied it. For example, I was able to, because again, they're so small, trace some of them through the census where I'd find them in 1778 as an, uh, you know, labeled as a mulata, but by 1813, uh, the next available city census, she is now either indigenous or she has become a Spanish woman. So that's one of the good things about, you know, um, going to these smaller colonial towns versus these larger ones. Um, it just really helped me to hone in on and really concentrate on the individual and see how she navigated these streets. At times, it would just feel like you could walk the streets. Even today, Adam, which makes this amazing city, it's still very much a colonial city. I mean, you still have the original plaza, right? Uh, where with the original, um, it's been built, you know, to built upon, but you have the cabildo, the govern, govern, governing house or, or town, excuse me, council, um, or you have the, the town council, the cabildo, or you have the cathedral. This was built in the 16th century. It's still there. Wow. In fact, what makes it even cooler is the archive that I worked in was only three blocks away from that. So I would, and I opened up one of my chapters with that. I mean, imagine you're sitting here reading about what's happening in the plaza, the same class I could see three blocks away, and I'd go there for lunch, you know, and I'd, wow. I would just sit there and say, holy moly, this is still there, right? Or the university that was built in 1613, it's still, the students are going to school in, the, in, in these buildings today. I mean, it's, and so Cordoba is very much a colonial city. I mean, it, you know, at the core, it's still very much a colonial city. It's, and especially the downtown district, which still has the original buildings. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you think about it. Very, very, uh, so at times I felt I was walking and I was walking the same routes that these black women were walking on a daily basis. So it's exceptional. And, and like I told you offline, you know, your, your, your book is, you know, it, it's, it's just a fascinating read and there's just so many, you know, amazing case studies that you uh, that that you encounter while you're reading your book, and so to to go more into the case studies, um, th- you have a you have one about uh, uh, Bernabella, um, one of the most fascinating. There there, there are a number of them, y'all. They're, first of all, y'all got to go buy this book. Go buy the book, please do it. Support our support our authors here. Support our historians. That's one. And two, please talk to us a bit about um, the story of Bernabella. I, I, you know, you're the historian, you know about it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you do it because it is an exceptional story. And I think the listeners would be interested to learn about. Definitely. So just some context, right? Um, the way I divided the book is, you know, each chapter deals with different levels of intimacy within the household that can arise. So in this case, for, for, for Bernabella, she's uh, the, the chapter on concubines and uh, versus and I have chapter on on wives, on mothers and then on daughters. But for the chapter on concubines, I discovered her in the ecclesiastical 
archives and it was a criminal case and I, it could easily be, you know, the, the next greatest drama <laughs> when you think about what, what, what took place. Essentially, she is involved with a priest, a vicar, right? So someone high ranking within the uh, Catholic Church. And she and this, this, this um, religious authority named Don Jose Lino de Leon, I'll refer to him as Don Jose, end up in this amazing love affair. But the problem, of course, is he's a priest. You know, he's, he, he should not be doing this. Um, but even more so, as the case really indicated, because essentially most religious men at, at various points, uh, it was known, let's just say it was very common for them to have, um, you know, a, a woman, you know, in a, in, a, in a sexual relationship. That was not uncommon. I mean, it's very, it was known. And I want to stress known because the problem and the audacity of this particular couple is that they made it public and they were not ashamed of it. And that was the issue. They caused a scandal. So here she is, an Afro-descended woman who is having this affair with this, with this priest who is openly supporting it. And the, so that's one of the biggest things that they would constantly say throughout the court case. On top of that, the fear was that, as they noted over and over again, she is white looking like a Spanish woman. So she not only could emulate, but she could ultimately pass. And they did not like that notion. Okay. And so it goes on and on about, you know, I had to, of course, add some of the fun details in there, you know, how, for example, um, she transgressed so much into this emulation of, of, of a senora or lady of the house. She would demand her slaves now, right? She was formerly a slave, but now she would demand her slaves to bring her chocolate in bed, right? So she, and, and, and wear the finest clothes that, you know, the priest would buy her and her daughter. Um, and I just could not stop reading this case. I was like, this, 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 you know, this is amazing <laughs> to have a woman be that, that. I mean, damn, like seriously, but she did it. And um, to get back to the book, right, it's showing the different ways in which uh, black women were able to seek out whiteness and via this relationship with this priest who lost everything, by the way, he was excommunicated in the end because he was not going to give her up. You know, she gets banished, she goes and finds her, they run away to the countryside, to you know, all that great juicy drama stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, what bothered, you know, the ecclesiastical authorities the most was two things. One, that they would not, you know, that they were so open about it. What a scandal, how embarrassing. Um, and two, this Afro-descended woman, this black woman, ultimately destroyed in many respects their notion of social hierarchy and literally said, I don't care, right? I'm going to do me. I'm going to have this ability to emulate a Spanish woman and do so, so well that, you know, it ends up going all the way to the king. I don't get that far into the book because I had to finish the book, but it goes all the way to the king who has to kick it back and say, essentially, handle it. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, this is, it's an amazing case. And it's just, again, showing 
the lengths in which um, black women went to to escape their blackness, right? But also then assure that their children would have a better life. She had a child and she made, and we don't know who the father is, but she made sure that she was put in um, the baptismal book for Spaniards because there were two books. Let me stress those that were Spaniard or white and then everybody else. Okay. So to be able to put her child in that book as well, once she's the senora, um, ultimately guarantees that that child, if ever there is any doubt of what race she is, go to the baptismal book and it's, you'll see that she's um, a Spaniard. So again, the lengths in which this woman went to to make sure that she not only obtained her freedom, but also set her child up for life is amazing. And, you know, I've got those types of, I've got those type of cases, but then I also have the, the kind of daily back and forth interactions that would happen every day just to show again that this was constantly something that Afro-descended women dealt with, right? This isn't just an extraordinary situation, but constantly if they're reminded that they are quote unquote less than, they would find ways to usurp that notion and to better their lives. Right. And and let me tell you all, like the way that she does it in the book is exceptional. Like y'all are going to be reading and it's like, wow, this is I might not have ever heard of this particular place. But the kinds of stories that uh, Dr. Edwards un- un- uncovers um, and writes about in the book are, are really exceptional. Um, and then also, um, you know, you, you spoke about in in the final couple sentences that you just had uh, about the household. Um and to me, one of the most striking aspects of your book um, was also looking at, at it through the lens of uh, the the public versus the private sphere, especially when we speak about mm-hmm. law. Um, so can you talk about, you know, kind of how, you know, the household is this, you know, private space, but because of the nature of the case studies that you're bringing up, right, this brings it very much public. So can you kind of talk about that, you know, the intersection between the public and the private sphere, specifically for uh, Afro-Argentine women who are, you know, engaging, you know, and, and who are, you know, engaging with law, right? Which is a very interesting uh, a, a way to, you know, in, think about re, even this has an intellectual history of, of sorts about enslaved women and their understanding of law. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, <clears throat> One of the things I think needs to be uh, just very briefly discussed is is the context in which this is taking place, a larger political context in which this is taking place, which is at the end of the 18th century. And at the end of the 18th century, there's this, you know, the age of revolution that's happening. Of course, we have this birth of the United States and we have, you know, the birth of, of, of Haiti that happens at the beginning of the 19th century. But then you also then have, slowly but surely, the birth of all these other republics in Latin America. Long story short, then, what we have is a lot of unrest and uncertainty, um, especially once Haiti takes place um, throughout Latin America. And one of the things that would happen, especially as Haiti is, or excuse me, St. Domingue is becoming Haiti, is this fear, a constant fear of an uprising, of uprising, an uprising of 
black black people and 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 indigenous people that are you know so and poor people so from the top down especially in Cordoba one of the ways to try and handle this was to implement various policies it was called the edicts of good governance right surveillance we want to know constantly what is happening on the street and so this governor ultimately puts forth all these kind of restrictive um, policies that target specifically, excuse me, African descendants. Okay, so we have this in the public sphere, but more specifically, he also then wants to infiltrate the household because the household or the private sphere, he argues, and it constantly is brought forth in a lot of the criminal cases that I saw, is a basic unit of social control. Okay, so ultimately, if you look into the household, you can see if there's unrest and problems and, and within this patriarchal mold, then there's, it's just going to spill out into the street. So if we can control the household, we will ultimately be able to control society. So I just want to make that, put that out there as ultimately why you see this back and forth between, between the public and the private. The private is the basic beginnings of what could potentially happen or spill out into the public. The worst thing that can happen is some type of scandal that will create, that will fester and start to get people moving, thinking, and ultimately breaking these codes of social hierarchy. So here then we have these African descended women, these black women that are oftentimes tied to the household based off of the labor that they provide, often as domestic workers. Okay, and that is why I find that it is so important to really understand then the various levels of intimacy that come forth. Um, there's a really great quote that I use in the book to describe then how to ultimately deal with the household, these intimate spaces, and what will then allow for their ability, these Black women, to ultimately escape their Blackness and or move forward into to either becoming, uh, quote unquote, a Spanish or a white woman or at times an Indigenous woman. Um, and ultimately, it's these daily intimate relationships where both domestic and sexual were forged with soiled bed linens, fever-soaked rags, chamber pots, and breast milk. And what I what I found, and this is a quote from uh, Michelle McKinley. What I, I I was just struck by that that notion because it, it not only are we dealing with the sexual, but more importantly, going beyond that. I mean, imagine, and I guess that's how I felt. I feel that it still connects then to any level of domestic work, um, taking care of the slaveholder, right? Um, Oftentimes as wet nurses, you know, feeding their children. These are the intimate connections that can lead to various levels of freedom beyond sex, right? Dealing with these soiled linens and, 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 and making sure that they're, they're taken care of. This is the type of care that we provided as Black women, whether it be in Argentina or the United States, um, especially during the colonial period and still today. Um, so having to forge those levels of emotion um, over time, especially when the household will allow for, at moments, these breakdowns of social hierarchy because these women are taking care of 
these, you know, they're, they're, these slaveholders, they're, they're white owners in very vulnerable moments of their lives. Okay. And I think that is really what could, it did allow for oftentimes a breakdown and or this, this ability to create an emotion that will usurp and or break the laws and allow for this marriage to happen, for example, or this loving relationship to happen in terms of being a concubine, or just kind of um, almost like a bothered with your relationship that will lead to freedom in the end. Okay. So in the sense, even though they're trying to hold on to, this is a top down, trying to hold on to and create kind of the household as a basic unit of, of social hierarchy, re-implement patriarchal notions of, of um, order, civility, morality. Um, we also have this woman, oftentimes an enslaved black woman, who would be lingering within the household, seeing and being and, 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 and knowing various levels of, of, of vulnerable moments and of their slaveholders and is essentially able to use that to become free one day. And she does. And she doesn't just not only for herself via these relationships that are formed, um, but also for her children. So again, it's just this flow. And, and, and that's what then leads also to the public as well. So no, that I hope I answered that question. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, that's, that's exceptional. Um, yeah, no, because like, like you were saying, it's just, very like it's very interesting seeing how the the black women of your study are able to i i, I guess negotiate their their race in, in a particular way that you know use the legalese of the day in argentina mm-hmm. to be able to, to to do that uh under this you know uh, a notion of um a black invisibility which like i said is someone who hasn't um you know, who's more, uh, you know, when I think about that, maybe that kind of concept, I think of just like, quote unquote, passing, right? I think that that's right. a reference that a lot of folks uh, who are not steeped Definitely. in the history, like that's going to be the first thing that they think about, but also passing and what the implications of that are. Um, well, and I just, I just want to really stress, because I, I didn't talk about the law just yet. Um, that is what was what was also key, not only these formations of intimacy, but also recognizing that at times you could break the law because cohabitation was considered to be illegal, but also work within the law. Because in Argentina and the rest of the colonial Latin America, interracial um, marriages were okay. They were allowed. So they were rare, right? For my time period, for example, the 18th century through early 19th century, there's only 25 that take place. But 25 of Black women, whether enslaved or free, to Spanish or Portuguese white men. And so their ability to work within the law as well also shows, again, how it's, it's, it's not just passing, but I mean, it is a level of passing. I'm not going to deny that. But it's also then this ability to make sure that this is con- it can be permanent, right? Because passing, what I think of that is you're constantly going to be fearful, right, that you may be found out or exposed. And in this case, what we have is if they're able to, as in the case of um, Bernabella's child, become uh, if they're able to get their um, 
baptism recorded in the book of Spanish baptism. That's it. There's no, she's no longer, the child no longer has to deal with that anymore. She is a Spanish woman. She is a white woman, right? Um, being connected to the right elite, and I want to stress elite white male, also made it so then um, their life would be quote unquote okay. And for seven or eight of the cases in which I followed these um, enslaved black women that were married to white men, they become donas over their lifetime. Okay. So again, being able to cross-reference uh, these, uh, these, these very rich sources, they're being born, you know, a slave, mulata, negra. I may see them become an indigenous woman about 20 years later, but then towards the very end, the last mention of her, now she's a doña. So it's, it's, it's really, and it, again, it's this protection that her white husband provides her that allows for that to become a permanent existence. And of course, her emulation and her, as I would say, her best performance, right, is what really then solidifies it. So it's you're you're moving beyond it. You are no longer going to be associated with that stain, as oftentimes it was called, the stain of blackness, right? Mm. Um, so again, sometimes they'd work within the law. Sometimes they would break the law. Um, sometimes it was working within the institution as well, um, this institutionalized whitening and making sure that the daughters, that these black girls were educated, right, in a segregated school, which a lot of people don't even realize existed, um, a segregated classroom in Cordoba as early as 1811, because they played a role, right, in this new budding republic in terms of how they were going to raise then future citizens, i.e., in this case, black men, because women technically, in quotations, could not be citizens, but they still played a very important role in terms of how they were going to create the ideal black male for uh, the republic. Mm. Okay, this, this man, well, what does this look like? Well, they recognize that mothers, right, had the ability to instill morality, civility, um, faith, and so, but they will not know how to do that unless they themselves receive an education. And so I think that's also very profound when we think about her role, you know, in terms of, of, of going to school and what the goal is for that. Yes. And, and you, you took the, the, the question right out of my mouth because I was oh, actually going to be, no, no, hey, no, this is, this is the, as an interviewer. This is what I love. You, you're, we're, we're symbiotic. You know what I'm saying? We already here. You want to know why, y'all? Because we're both from Florida. But that's a whole other no, podcast. That's it. That's that, be it. Absolutely. <laughs> South Florida in the house. And so yeah. um, because the reason why I bring that up is because uh, you brought up the role of public education um, yes. and institutionalized whitening. And I thought as I was reading your book over the last few days, getting to that point along with getting to your conclusion, I was like, my head, my hand was on my head. I was like, Good grief. She hitting me right now with with all of the history, Um, in in part because I don't know if I'm the only one, but reading about how public education whitened right or had a role in whitening the, the populace in that way was something that I wasn't when I read the chapter title. That is not exactly what I thought was going to be on the other side uh, on that on that chapter. Um, oh wow! Yeah, because like I said, I'm you know the context, but also just the understanding, right? And and just mm-hmm. the understanding of 
the role of public education in that um, as an institution. Um, But then also as a question too, um, you know, speaking uh, specifically about, um, you know, more the legal whitening and such, when you're writing this, what is the biggest challenge for you as you're coming up with, you know, your, your methodologies, your organization, what would you say was the most uh, challenging part about writing Hiding in Plain Sight? Golly, I don't know if most of you, <laughs> I can list <laughs> Oh, geez. Um, I'd probably say the most challenging aspect of, of this was to make sure I was true to her as well as providing the context in which she ultimately navigated. And I, I get, so, so is this too much background? Is this enough background? Am I making her seem too exceptional? It was a lot of balancing acts going on to try and, and fit the pieces together. And once I finally said, you know, okay, if this is a history about the household, about intimacy, who is in the family? And that's when I came up with concubines, wives, mothers, daughters. And I said, that's going to be then how I'm going to frame, frame the book, right? These different roles that these women could potentially play in the household. Um, but that was really, you know, until then it was kind of individual, but context of, of Cordoba and history. How do I, what, how does this, how is this all going to play together? Cause I, 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 I could see it in my head as we often say, but to put it down, you know, on, on our, and on the screen, right. And, and type that up. That was very, very challenging. Uh, but until I finally said, who's, who's in the family and how do I want to, frame this and that's that's when I really stress then well what does it mean to be a mother, right? The sacrifice that you'll make and 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 the willingness to, you know, go to court and uh, insult judges as in the case of one of the cases I had in order to, you know, stand up for your daughter who has been abused by this particular priest and and they were so upset with her, the audacity of this black woman coming before the court and not paying, you know, not following the rules. You know, who is this woman? This woman's a mom. That's who she is. And she didn't care. And she was like, my daughter deserves, you know, to be free because ultimately this particular slaveholder has had kids with her, promised her freedom and still nothing. You know, and, and, and you just imagine that passion that she had. But then also then, oh, let me explain why this is important. This is during the wars of independence and how dare she do this when everything is, you know, just about to explode. Right. So, um, yeah, that that those that was the challenge that I had. And then, you know, how much of a context do I want to get into? Am I going to lose the, the reader? You know, that type of stuff. I mean, I think it's 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 very common for all of us that do history. You know, how much do you add? How much do you take away? Um, but I purposely wanted to write a book that was accessible to everybody. So for those that you more, you know, my scholar, my colleagues, as well as my mother, I, I was intent. I made that very uh, explicit when I wrote. And then I constantly had to remind myself, I mean, <laughs> let me tell this is funny. I would, t- I would give chapters to my mom and mm. just watch the reaction. Okay. Watch her reaction to see what, 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 you know, is she actually reading this or is she getting 
tired after five minutes. (laughs) Oh, I'll read it later. I was like, yeah, I know what that means. That part's boring or that part she didn't get. So I would just, I would, I would do that with her and, and listen to her to tell me, well, what parts work, what don't work? Because I wanted to make sure that she could read this book and enjoy this book. So, yeah. Well, hey, I already know. I'm like, hey, mom, literally, I know you're listening right now. Um, I hope you enjoyed the book because believe me, you'll see it at some point. Just putting that out there, mama. Um, and so, you know, to, to, to pivot a little bit in the in the brief amount of time that we have today, um, more of just questions just, you know, leading out of the book or coming out of the book, rather, um, you know, how does this book, how does Hiding in Plain Sight, right? Because as a graduate student who's, you know, early in teaching and such, I'm always interested in how my favorite scholars, i.e. Dr. Edwards, right? How how do my favorite scholars yeah. think about uh, teaching, right? Uh, maybe not necessarily their bo- own books in the, in the classrooms. I know people, you know, are different on that. But specifically, how do the concepts, how do the themes, how do the methodologies that you, that, that you, um, that you bring to bear here, how do they inform you in the classroom and how do you talk to your students about them? Good question. Um, I think one of the things that helped and in terms of the book and, or, and how I can use it or how anyone can use it in the classroom is to um, think in terms of what life would, was like for women. And ultimately the, the levels of, of, of domestic life for the 18th century, right? And oftentimes, um, my students specifically, oh, well, they were just screwed. Women had no rights. They weren't doing nothing. And, and because of this patriarchy and all this, you know, you know, they just had no chance. That's what I constantly hear a lot of women saying, and not women, but in general, students saying in, in in my classes. And I'm just like, but wait a second. Why don't we flip that? Why don't we see, you know, you see them, see it as limitations. I see these in my book shows. This was actually one of the best parts of, of, of the, this is how they could leverage, right? And, and bring about their freedom. So you say, or I would, you know, I challenge them, and this is what this book is showing. These same roles that you find as being, you know, so um, detrimental actually could assist and help, right? This notion of Republican motherhood, which is something that's very um, well known in the United States, right? Well, we've seen it as well in Argentina. So even though they may not legally be a citizen, dang it, they still played such an important role in the creation of a republic, okay? This mother, right, or this wife, there's a really great quote um, in terms of her role and how she how she shapes, right, a husband's uh, attitude. You know, he shares his fears, his his happiness. He seeks counsel from her. That is that's the importance of a wife, right? And 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 it just so. Again, you may think that this is a, you know, well, all she could be is work in the home. But you know what? The home was her castle. There's another great quote where they say that they are the daily sentinels of the household. He has the public. She has the private. And dang it, she needs to protect that. And she's the guardian of the home. 
Because again, going back to this notion that at the end of the day, the basic social unit of social hierarchy, social discipline, morality, civility comes from the house. Well, guess who's in charge, really? She is. And so um, taking all that in terms of gender and then applying that then to an African-descended woman who is then able to navigate and move within those, quote unquote, some people would say restrictions, really shows how phenomenal these women are. Okay? That, yes, you may have these limitations put upon them, but actually they're able to use them, um, circumvent them at times, or break the mold when necessary in order to achieve what they wanted. It wasn't a case in terms, if we were to make a, a, a comparison with black men, right, where they have these kind of individualistic moments and sacrifices on the battlefield. No, this is the household, right? This is her um, taking care of people on a daily basis, forming these intimate relationships that will ultimately lead to her freedom. Um, and it can only take place in the household and it can only be her that does it. And that, I think, is what is key to this book. It's showing and, and flipping this notion of household and, and gender and that this is not the limitations that, that a lot of my students want to, to continue to perpetuate. But rather, this is a game changer in how she's able to move forward and seek out freedom for herself as well as for her children. Um, that could be, you know, and that's, that to me is, is the story of this book various levels of resistance that oftentimes are forgotten and or goofy plug hidden in plain sight. There we go. Ooh, that is, I see what you did there. See, you know, you got that training. Like I, that? That. I like that. <laughs> hey, that's what we do. Thank you. That's what Floridians do. I like that. Um, yes. And so, you know, one of uh, two, two more questions, right? Because, you know, I know the time is limited. But you use the word, you use that R word that us historians of slavery love talking about. Ooh, that word, resistance. Where does your, um, right, where does your book fit in this paradigm of resistance that is oft spoken about and oft written about um, in, the, in the current historiography of, of, of slavery? Well, um, as it, you know, as I mentioned in, in, the conclusion and, and in general throughout the book is it's it's a daily occurrence, right? These are these these are these daily interactions um, that oftentimes are something so subtle that people would dismiss that because oftentimes in historiography runs to the slave rebellions, right, or the violence of slave of of ending slavery, which is definitely a form of resistance, but so are, you know, these little actions that happen on a daily basis, right? And I guess that's what I want us to continue to move forward with is to look at that and say, no, they aren't, you know, out there um, killing people or, or um, fighting for freedom on the battlefield, but rather, um, to transform themselves into Spanish women or indigenous women or become educated is about highlighting a level of adaption. And a, that adaption is the core of the resistance. So 
oftentimes I think uh, we can easily, oh, but that's just selling out. No, no, no. What about this ability to mold yourself and to become something else, right? In order to better their social condition is truly another form of, of resistance. So again, this I just really want to stress this notion of adapting to what's there versus constantly rejecting it, I think is, is something I hope that historians continue to explore as a form of resistance. There we go. And, and, and our final question, right, is February. It is February. Mm-hmm. So you know what that means. It's Black History Month. Um, and so you are a Black woman historian. What does it mean for you to write the work that you do, to chronicle the people that you do as a, as a historian of Afro-Argentine uh, women and, and just of, of Black women globally? What does that mantle mean to you? Well, it is an honor to be able to do this. And I cannot stress that enough. Um, And not just a black woman, I'm African-American. And so to be able to highlight then the story of Afro-Argentines, to me, is to continue to broaden this notion of the diaspora and our, and I stress, our experiences of, as black women in the Americas, right? And I think that was key. Um, and I could speak very briefly that really, you know, this is a personal experience that I had that I will never forget. And I think that's what really propelled me to move forward. During my first trip there, I remember after four weeks of not seeing another Black person, I finally saw one. Um, her name was Celia. She was from Brazil. And... Um, I remember running up to her. I could barely speak the Spanish. And I was like, me, you, you, me. And I just kept pointing to our skin. <laughs> look, look, look. Like it was now I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, thank God. She, she, you know, she was with her little boy at the time. And I know she was just like, Woo, what is this? And I thank God she said, okay, uh, she's okay. And she said, okay, okay, okay. You know, she could only speak Portuguese. She couldn't speak English, you know, so Spanish was going to have to work somehow, but my Spanish wasn't to her level. Long story short, we ended up becoming good friends. She took me home that day and I would often go to her house. And I mean, imagine there wasn't a lot that we would say to each other yet because my Spanish wasn't there yet. She had married a an Argentine. That's why she was there or um, living in Argentina. And yet it was such an experience. And I remember thinking, she's black like me and she's Brazilian and I'm American and yet we got it. And it just that, and later on I ended up meeting another Cuban woman, black woman who took me out and showed me, you know, parts of Argentina or excuse me, Buenos Aires and Amabel and the same thing. And I felt like we, we got it. By then my Spanish was a little bit better. So thank goodness. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, here's someone from Brazil, here's somebody from Cuba, myself, an American. And and that's the connection that I felt. And that's the connection I feel when I'm telling their stories, even if it is from a couple hundred years ago. 
you know, these are the, the, this connection is so, it's so strong and it's such a beautiful connection to be able to highlight their stories and talk about their struggles and more specifically how they thrived, how they adapted, you know, and how they forged their own experiences. Because that is the essence, I think, of Black womanhood throughout the Americas. Is that despite it all, we still move forward. We still found a way to create our own. Mm-hmm. Well, y'all, y'all have just been blessed as I have been over the last hour, seven minutes and 31 seconds and counting. It, it, look, it, time goes by quick when you're when you're when you're here and you're discussing amazing work and you're able to listen to the stories. Right of amazing historians like yourself. And once again, folks, we have had the honor, blessing, and the privilege to talk on New Books in African American Studies today with Dr. Erica D. Edwards, Associate Professor of Colonial Latin American History, Latin American Studies, and Africana Studies at UNC Charlotte. And once again, Dr. Edwards has been on to discuss her brand new book. Y'all go get this book published by our friends, our new, new, awesome friends, definitely my new friends, at the University of Alabama Press. And Dr. Edwards' new book is entitled Hiding in Plain Sight, Black Women, the Law, and the Making of a White Argentine Republic. Dr. Edwards, it has been a pleasure to have you on the program, and I cannot wait until our next conversation. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Adam. I, too, just want to just, again, uh, stress that this is an honor to be able to be included amongst African American studies. And I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. No problem. And once again, folks, I'm your host of New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam McNeil, and I'm a second year PhD student in history at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Until next time, y'all, over and out.